Good morning. This is Alan Carroll at Carroll Pharmacy in Smithfield, and we are proud to bring you Hope for Today, a program we hope might help you, inspire you, or encourage you and give you hope for today. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Have you prepared for retirement? That's the first thing I heard when I turned on the radio one day this past week. It immediately brought to my mind another question that, in my opinion, is far more important than being prepared for retirement. And that question is, have you prepared for the place you will spend eternity? It is sad to say that some of you listening today may have prepared very well for retirement while taking lightly or not considering at all where you will spend eternity when your retirement years are over. And that is the main focus of this program, Hope for Today, each week. Because I know, as do many of you, that our hope had better not be in a large bank account or in children or grandchildren who might or might not take good care of us or in good friends and neighbors or even loving and devoted spouses. Because none of these people or anything else in this world will bring us the peace and security of knowing that God has prepared a place for those who love Him and have accepted by faith the gift of salvation given by His Son, Jesus Christ. As a new year begins, there are many people who make New Year's resolutions, and a few who might actually keep them. Some resolutions might include setting up a budget and sticking to it, going to church on a regular basis, spending less, losing weight, getting organized, and the list goes on and on. There are countless goals or resolutions people would decide on as a new year begins, and many are very worthy. I would like to suggest a goal for you and me this year. And that is that we strive to be better people all during this year than we are today. And just how do you think we might accomplish that? Especially those of you who think you're pretty good, and perhaps you are when you compare yourself to some in your circle of friends or some in your workplace or in your neighborhood or your family or in your retirement home. But when you compare yourself to Jesus Christ, I'm sure you will agree that there is definitely room for improvement this year. How does one work on such a lofty goal, that is, becoming more like Jesus? I think one way is to take the advice of Drs. Henry and Richard Blackaby in the introduction to their devotional book, Experience in God Day by Day, and that advice is, commit yourself to spend regular time with God each day. It will change your life. Nothing can replace the life-changing experience of reading Scripture. End of quote. Dwight L. Moody has this to say about becoming more Christ-like. The purpose of Bible study is not to increase your knowledge, but to make you more like Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone had a goal of spending time each day with God and getting to know Him better by reading His Word and asking for His wisdom and then knowing and obeying His will? I read somewhere many years ago that God's will for each of us who are Christians is that we should live in a manner that brings glory to God. And that is God's will, that we obey Him, and when we do this, it brings glory to Him, and it also brings blessings to us. In the Old Testament, we read in Psalm 90:12, Teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. Are you spending your days as you should? How should you be spending your days? In her book, Having a Merry Spirit, Joanna Weaver has this to say about New Year's resolutions, quoting from her book. I've always dreamed of being much more than I am, more organized, more disciplined, more loving, 
much more, much more, if you know what I mean. Each January, I set out on a new self-improvement program. This year, I'll get in shape. This year, I'll keep my house clean. This year, I'll send out birthday cards on time. This year, really, I'll be the loving, forgiving, obedient woman of God I long to be instead of the willful, stubborn, disobedient Christian I sometimes see staring back at me in the mirror. I know that genuine happiness only comes from living close to God and obeying Him. Maybe you've discovered, as I have, that most New Year's resolutions have little effect on day-to-day life except to add a burden of guilt and a feeling of failure, continually striving yet never arriving. I'm so glad we have a Savior who loves us just as we are, but loves us too much to leave us that way. Jesus will do whatever it takes to return to us the glory of God that we were meant to reflect in the world, so that, through our lives, people might see who God really is. Now, for those of us who are Christians, that is surely a worthy goal for every day, to live in a way that reflects God's glory so that through our lives, people might see who God really is. Do people see God when they see you at ball games? Do they think of God when they hear you talking? Do they think of God when they see you in line at the grocery store? If you are like me, you know there is definitely room for improvement before people will see who God really is by observing us. But I perceive a bigger problem for those of you who have never accepted the free gift of salvation offered by Jesus Christ and are not Christians. And I imagine for some of you getting older and some whose health is failing and some who just can't seem to overcome an addiction or a bad habit, that you are becoming very worried about the real possibility that there is a heaven and a hell and that you are on the road to hell and you should be worried. I imagine that you don't have a lot of peace in your heart because you are at odds with the one who created you. If you are on the right path, you will have peace. Jesus came that we might have and enjoy life to the full. Are you enjoying your life to the full? If you are not, maybe you need to read God's instruction book, the Bible. God is the source of wisdom, and the path to wisdom is through obedience. And sometimes obedience will involve suffering, as some of you well know. But you were in good company because even Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and it was through his obedience, even to his death on the cross, that has secured for those of us who believe in him a place in his eternal kingdom. In 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, we read these words, The whole Bible was given to us by inspiration from God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and helps us do what is right. It is God's way of making us well-prepared at every point, fully equipped to do good to everyone. I would like to read you a poem by Mother Teresa entitled, The Final Analysis. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone may destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. 
Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is all between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. I went to Bible study fellowship for many years. You may have heard of it as BSF. One of the many things I have learned as I have studied the Bible is that one of the ways we worship God is how we treat other people. It really is painful for me to consider this because of the way I have treated some people in the past, or perhaps when I did not speak up when I should have and defended someone. We need to realize that what we are asked to do is to live in a manner that brings honor and glory to God. Now, there are many times I will question myself because I know what I said or did, or my attitude absolutely did not bring any glory to God. As a matter of fact, it did quite the opposite. I know that it is sad for God to see us living so much like the world instead of living like His Son, Jesus Christ. So many of Paul's letters and other New Testament letters tell us what we should be doing or not doing. They tell us that trials and troubles will come, to even expect them. I'm going to read some verses now from the book of James, and James was the half-brother of Jesus, quoting from James. If you want to know what God wants you to do, ask Him, and He will gladly tell you, for He is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask Him. He will not resent it. If you don't ask with faith, don't expect the Lord to give you any solid answer. When someone wants to do wrong, it is never God who is tempting him. Whatever is good and perfect comes to us from God. Don't ever forget, it is best to listen much, speak little, and not become angry. For anger doesn't make us good, as God demands that we must be. And remember, it is a message to obey, not just to listen to. Anyone who says he is a Christian, but doesn't control his sharp tongue, is just fooling himself, and his religion isn't worth much. You will be judged on whether or not you are doing what Christ wants you to. So watch what you do and what you think. Faith that doesn't show itself by good works is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. Don't be too eager to tell others their faults, for we all make many mistakes. If you are wise, live a life of steady goodness so that only good deeds will pour forth. Jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and full of quiet gentleness. Then it is peace-loving and courteous. It allows discussion and is willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It is wholehearted and straightforward and sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of goodness. So give yourselves humbly to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't criticize and speak evil about each other, dear brothers. If you do, you will be fighting against God's law of loving one another, declaring it is wrong. But your job is not to decide whether this law is right or wrong, but to obey it. Only he who made the law can rightly judge among us. What right do you have to judge or criticize others? Remember, too, that knowing what is right to do and then not doing it is sin. Is anyone among you suffering? He should keep on praying about it. And those who have reason to be thankful should continually be singing praises to the Lord. The earnest prayer of a righteous man 
has great power and wonderful results. End of quote. This has been a brief journey through the book of James, a short book with only five chapters that I hope you might take time to read this year. I want to read you a quote from Robert Louis Stevenson. Don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. As we enter this new year, let us all be determined to plant seeds of love and kindness and goodness wherever we are. Let us always follow the golden rule to treat others as we want them to treat us. I heard this prayer by a young girl. Dear Lord, make the bad people good and make the good people nice. Let us all strive to be nice people this year. Do you want to make a difference in your world this year? In his book, A Gentle Thunder, Max Locato lists eight things you might do to make a difference in your world this year. Be faithful to your spouse. Be the one at the office who refuses to cheat. Be the neighbor who acts neighborly. Be the employee who does the work and doesn't complain. Pay your bills. Do your part and enjoy life. Don't speak one message and live another. People are watching the way we act more than they are listening to what we say. As those of you who have listened before are aware, Charles Spurgeon, a Christian preacher from the 19th century, is a favorite of mine. I would like to read about his salvation experience as recounted in the one-year Christian history book by Michael and Sharon Rustin on January the 6th. Charles Spurgeon was born in Kelvedon, Essex, England in 1834 of Dutch ancestry. His father and grandfather were both independent pastors outside of the Church of England, and he was raised with a strict adherence to the Scriptures. In his father's and grandfather's studies, Charles pored over their books. Fox's Book of Martyrs and Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress were his early reading. Despite knowing intellectually that Christ died for our sins, Charles was so aware of his shortcomings that he could not believe that it applied to him. Turning to books such as Aileen's Admonition to Unconverted Sinners and Baxter's Call to the Unconverted only seemed to confirm his need for salvation. He asked many different preachers the same question, How can I get my sins forgiven? No one provided an answer he understood, but on January the 6th, 1850, everything changed. Fifteen-year-old Charles was headed to church during a snowstorm that Sunday morning when he ducked into a primitive Methodist chapel to escape the snow. The congregation was sparse, and a lay preacher was filling in for the pastor. His text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Charles loved to tell the story, and here's the story in Charles Spurgeon's own words. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, This is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now, looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just, Look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. When he had uh, managed to spin, spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. 
Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away, and in that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered, and now I can say, Ever since my faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Charles Spurgeon did indeed keep looking to Jesus, and he went on to become the most famous preacher of his generation, ministering in London's Metropolitan Tabernacle. Under the reflection for this day's reading, it says, Raised in a Christian family, Charles Spurgeon knew all the facts, but it wasn't until he was 15 that God saved him. Regardless of your knowledge and background, there has to be a moment in time when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, and you look to Jesus for salvation. Have you looked? Isaiah 45:22. Let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God. There is no other. In regard to Spurgeon's being so skeptical that he could actually be saved due to his failures, there may be some of you listening who feel like your life has been so bad that there is no way Jesus could forgive your sins. If that is what you might be thinking, I would like to review for you some of the people who are in the lineage of Jesus Christ. In the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, 46 people are listed as ancestors of Jesus. One woman, Rahab, was a prostitute. King David was an adulterer and had his mistress Bathsheba's husband killed. I seriously doubt that your sins would rise to the level of these mentioned, but I would like to read you the notes for these verses from the Life Application Bible. In the first 17 verses of Matthew, we meet 46 people spanning 2,000 years. All were ancestors of Jesus, but they varied considerably in personality, spirituality, and experience. Some were heroes of the faith, like Abraham, Isaac, Ruth, and David. Some had shady reputations, like Rahab and Tamar. Many were very ordinary, like Hezron, Aram, Nashon, and Achim. And others were evil, like Manasseh and Abijah. God's work in history is not limited by human failures or sins, and He works through ordinary people. Just as God used all kinds of people to bring His Son into the world, He uses all kinds today to accomplish his will. Regarding sins and the forgiveness of God, I would like to tell you this illustration that Anne Graham Lotz used many years ago that I have never forgotten. 
Picture a sandy beach. And as you walk along the beach, you might see the tiny little holes that the sand fiddlers make as they dig their tiny holes in the water-soaked sand. Then as you walk further on down the beach, you come to an area where children have dug in the sand to fill their buckets to make sand castles, and they have left large holes in the sand. Walking further on down the beach, you come to an area where huge bulldozers have excavated tremendous amounts of sand and left huge holes in the beach. But do you know what happens overnight when the tide comes in? The water covers all the holes, the small, the medium size, and the huge. Ann Lotz compares this with Christ's forgiveness of our sins, our little sins, our medium-sized sins, and our big sins. Christ's blood covers them all. That is the good news, and that is our hope for today. Another illustration I heard many years ago was about a preacher teaching about Christ and his cleansing us from sin. He had a dirty wicker basket, and he asked someone to bring him a pitcher of water so he could clean the basket. He was told that he couldn't wash a basket with holes in it, but he started pouring the water over it. And although the water did go through the basket, he asked if the basket was not now cleaner than it had been, which of course it was. He compared this to reading God's Word. He said, if you read God's Word every day, you are not going to understand everything you read, but you will understand enough of it that it will help you become a better person if you work at it. My prediction for this year is this. If you will get your Bible out and read some of it every day and try to put into practice some of what you are instructed to do, at the end of this year, you will be a better person. Not a perfect person, but more like Jesus Christ at the end of this year than you are today. Maybe you could start by reading a chapter in Proverbs each day or one or two of the Psalms. If you are not a believer, you might want to read the book of John in the New Testament. I remember a conference I went to in Winston-Salem, and the speaker was a missionary from Vermont. He told us that only 2% of the people in Vermont were Christians, which was the lowest percentage of any state in the United States. He was inviting people to a Bible study. One couple he had invited, and because he met him at the grocery store, came to the study. Well, when the missionary began, he asked everyone to turn to the book of John. The man looked at his wife and said, He told me to bring a Bible, not the book of John. The book of John is one of the four Gospels located in the New Testament. John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he wrote his book so that, in his own words, quote, You will believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God and that believing in him, you will have life, end of quote. So if you are not a believer, I would encourage you to read the Gospel of John. I would like to close with this verse today from Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Thank you for listening.
Hope for Today, brought to you each Sunday morning by Carroll Pharmacy. We hope the message today has helped and encouraged you. If we can ever help you with your prescriptions, over-the-counter medications, or vaccines, we hope you will come in to our family-owned and operated independent pharmacy, where outstanding customer service is our goal. 